Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, great. We had a semi-major winter storm here in Boston yesterday. We got, I think, about half a foot of snow. And uh, that reminds me. I know that's your. You hate that. That reminds me because that's there's a joke coming, but this really isn't a joke. <laughs> okay. But I've learned in my study of Old English that the Anglo-Saxons counted years by counting winters. Maybe that tells you something about their life, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I might start doing that too. Like if someone asks me, "Hey, Derek, how long have you lived in Boston?" I'm going to say. I've been here 11 winters, Mm. right? I'm going to start counting my years by winters. Um, But mm. we're also not supposed to say Anglo-Saxons anymore. Uh, So, oops, oh well. Oh, well, indeed. What are we supposed to say now? Just people of European descent or? We're supposed to say the early medieval English or something like that. Because Anglo-Saxon apparently has a whole bunch of racist overtones now. And I didn't know any other word for for these peoples, the Germanic peoples that migrated to Britain in the um, after the Romans left. So yeah, I don't know. Alrighty. The more you know, the more, the more we you know. know. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, just go ahead and get into the conversation for this week. We'll be in uh, Jacob chapter. Oh wow, Jacob, Genesis chapter. 28 through 33. But before we go ahead and do that, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So again, we are in I almost said Jacob again. Genesis mm. chapter 28, verse 28 through chapter 33. Right. And uh, th- this is going to center on uh, the story of Jacob. Uh, last time we, let me get my, my books out here. Last time we saw Jacob, Jacob has just left, um, has just left home because he had, uh, deceived his brother and his father out of the birthright and the, blessing respectively and his mother rebecca has sent him to his uncle laban in another land so we are picking up at about that point in the story so we're going to right. see jacob's dealings with his brother-in-law or sorry his his uncle laban and his subsequent uh, relationship with rachel and leah we're also going to see his you know the birth of several of his children his eventual struggle with god and his asterisk reconciliation in chapter 33 that's what these uh, that's what these readings is going to is going to cover uh, do you have any other prefatory words you want to put the people onto before we dive in no other than through one theme that I see woven through all of these uh, chapters is this idea of independent access to God. We have okay. um, Jacob, and but not only Jacob, but also his wives talking directly to God and God talking directly to them. And you get some really close access to God with the whole wrestling with God or the angel of God, however you characterize it. And then with the Jacob's Ladder thing, there's just a lot of really interesting intimacy and independent access to God that provides a model for um, what I'm going to call pioneers. We talk a lot about pioneers in the church, and it's not those LARPers with funny outfits. LARPers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the sisters who call it Latter-day LARPing the Trek. Yeah, Yo. but people honor the the pioneers, but like, look at me, I'm a pioneer. Like, you I'm are. doing something that's hard, that's not really been done before, and it's going to serve as a foundation for those who come later, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm doing in the church is pioneering, and I'm not wearing any suspenders or funny hats. I'm, I'm a pioneer. Yes, you are, sir. Yes, you are. Um, before I forget, there there are some other themes that we are going to be returning to in this story. We're still not done 
with uh, some of the motifs that we've seen since we started the story of the patriarchs or the start of the whole study of the Hebrew Bible. Um, we're going to see more echoes and parallels and repetitions of the themes of uh, barren women, dueling siblings, refugee fathers, passive patriarchs, uh, women playing a very uh, significant role in the story. We're going to see some more of that um, in this particular story. And, uh, you know, I'll make sure to point those out as we as we go through uh, the chapters here. Um, and of course, we're also going to see, as you said, the themes mm-hmm. of uh, personal revelation of intimacy with God. Some I mean, we'll we can talk more about that when we actually discuss the stories. But I, I just like that you yeah. pointed that theme out because that was one of the one of the first things that I noticed in terms of uh, the story. In fact, the Come Follow Me manual actually pointed that out to me. It was really interesting. Um, I, I started going through the Come Follow Me manual first to see if there's anything that uh, you know resonates or makes sense or just anything that I want to lift up that the Come Follow Me manual points out. And in one of the first paragraphs, and I think the introductory paragraph of the Come Follow Me, it, make, it talks about uh, Jacob's initial exile or his time in the wilderness and uh, what happens in the wilderness. This is another thing. The wilderness theme is uh, present in the uh, in the text this week. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the wilderness before on the show, about how it's, a, it's often a place of spiritual development. Usually when God is physically moving us from place to place, he also uses this physical movement as a time of, you know, this time of isolation, of loneliness, of vulnerability to uh, teach us a few things, teach us a few things about ourselves, and now also uh, teach us more dependence on, uh, teach us more dependence on God. So a question I got here, uh, straight off the rip, given Jacob's dream in uh, Genesis chapter 28 and this uh, reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant for the third successive generation, we got it from Abraham, we got it from Isaac, and we're getting it again uh, in Jacob question I got is why is this repetition happening and what what can this teach us this event of this mm-hmm. reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob what can we learn from this regarding how God operates or perhaps the necessity of modern day prophets um, or personal revelation even is there something to be said using the event using this event about any of this right I mean um there's a there's a prayer in Judaism, the Amidah, uh, also called the Shemona Esrei, and it is the uh, the central standing prayer of the daily uh, prayer rhythm. And in it, there's the line, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, uh, or, I mean the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the rabbis always comment on this. Uh, why does it say the God of repeated three times? Why not just say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And the rabbis say, well, that's because the relationship was different with each one. And I think you clearly see this, and um, which really is in stark contrast to this concept of orthodoxy, right? I don't even think orthodoxy is a native Latter-day Saint word. Like how people talk about being an Orthodox Mormon or an Orthodox Latter-day Saint. And what they're doing is they're signaling a particular thing, but mm-hmm. we don't even have a fixed, finalized dogma to be Orthodox with respect to, right? We have line upon line learning. Um, individuals learn line upon line. Like anyone who's been in, in the missionary field or uh, raised children or helped nurture converts, people are going to be on different lines as they grow. Like if you go through the temple, you're going to go through different lines. And not everyone's on the same line. There is no such thing as orthodoxy given the individual relationship that God has with God's people. And these people who are claiming to be Orthodox Latter-day Saints are really trying to police boundaries that aren't even native to our tradition. We're not Protestants that have, uh, and we're not Catholics. We don't have this uh, um, formally defined standardized dogma, right? We have an openness. Our, Our doctrine is just all truth. Our doctrine is just all truth. All truth can be circumscribed into one whole. 
And mm-hmm. this is the long way around of answering a question is as to why do we see this sort of individuality, this individual access to God, God's relationship being slightly different with each one of them, a God's relationship with Ishmael being different with God, than God's relationship with um, with Isaac, God's relationship with Esau different than God's relationship with Jacob. And so now God still has a relationship with these other peoples, right? But mm-hmm. given the way that God leads God's covenant people, there's no such thing as orthodoxy, right? I just, um, yeah. And I, I, actually, if you look at general conference talks, um, I hate to say, oh, look, like, but what I'm doing is linguistic evidence as to whether orthodoxy is a native term in our tradition, and it's really not. Like, if you search the general conference talks from 1850s to present and search for the word orthodox, most of the time you're going to be talking about Nicene Christians, right? They're like, oh, those are the orthodox, right? The ones that are traditional mainstream Catholics or Protestants or Eastern Orthodox. That's what orthodox means. People don't really talk much about or make a big deal about Orthodox Mormonism, right? So Mm -hmm. that's not native to our tradition, so stop policing that and stop using something that's even foreign to our tradition to try to put um, those of us with a more expansive view in our place. Okay, so um, what I'm hearing is that the model of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each receiving the Abrahamic covenant and in a different way, tells us that a certain degree of openness is required of us as we receive the commandments and the covenants from God and in our context. It's uh, it's very likely that Abraham would have made his children aware of the covenants, and the same goes for Isaac, but not only did Jacob need his own witness, he also needed it in a slightly different way so he could receive it, and perhaps also that it would be relevant to him according to his relationship with God and his you know, historical and familial context would would that be would that be somewhat accurate? Yeah, and I think some people will will take this to mean, um, well, you can't just rest on the tradition of your fathers. You have to make it your own. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, it's it's liberatory to say we have the right to make it our own in every new generation. Right, we are not limited to what are the tradition of our fathers. Like every every generation, we can take it anew, which is, do you remember those radical Orthodox people? That thing that went around, like, hopefully I'd actually forgot forgotten about, about them, but like... Well, good. It, yes, that's, that's a <laughs> testament to the lack of, of quality of their project that it didn't go anywhere, and it hasn't resulted in anything. Mm-hmm. But um, now I'm going to ramble on about the radical Orthodox. First of all, they chose the wrong name because that's already been used. It's uh, It's... It already means something in systematic theology. It's John Milbank's whole project from within the Anglican world. And um, I don't have time to talk about that. But what what they're trying to do is allegedly thread this very, very narrow uh, gap, right, between the far-right Desnats and and then the expansive progressive people. But I'm, I'm looking at them. Do you think there's this really tiny gap that's hard to navigate? There is a big planetary-sized gap between me and the Desnats mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you don't need to like delicately thread this little um, gap and, and fall, fall afoul of either pitfall. And I mm-hmm. think um, they're trying to exercise boundary maintenance. Now, every group, even the progressives, will have boundary maintenance. But what my problem is, is it's a pure exercise of power. They're trying to use their intellectual whatever they have, to um, reinscribe and say, we want a little bit of openness, but not 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 open enough to include gay folks. That's really what it was. Yeah. Um, they wanted to really go option one all the way on uh, LGBT stuff and then some historical critical work on our scriptures. They, they do not want to reinvestigate and see what God is really doing with uh, some of our foundational scriptures, and they they do, they want that to be off limits too, any any new thinking on that. But anyway, so my point is, um, 
Joseph wasn't like that. Brigham wasn't like that. They had glorious, expansive views. Now, they also had racism, right? I'm not saying everything, of course. Mm -hmm. But there's pieces of the method that 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 are are so beautiful um there's a wildness there almost a wilderness there that every generation has to wrestle anew with stuff and i think yeah. when we as latter-day saints were at our worst when we just hold on to tradition and just say well that's the way we've always done it mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i suspect that the inertia that kind of inertia is why certain injustices have um sprang so long among our people not just not because we're bad people but because of the weight of tradition like well we've always had this and um but anyway we we are not limited by the traditions of our fathers as we see both in the book of mormon and here in genesis mm. speaking of which uh look at where this uh promise is given uh, where Jacob mm-hmm. receives this revelation. He again, he receives this moment, this revelation, this promise. He sees, he receives it in his most vulnerable moment uh, when he has exactly. made it on these, uh, when he's made this pillow of stones. And was this, was this a dream? I don't remember if this was a right. dream. Right, yeah, it's not. a dream. I want it to remind people okay. from last week, why is he out here on the way uh, to Northern Mesopotamia? It's because he's afraid for his life because of what mm-hmm. he did to his brother Esau. He's like, I got to get out of here. My mom said, you got to get out of here, which is analogous in some ways to what some queer people face. It's not safe at home. Sometimes our mamas tell us you got to get out of here just before something else worse happens. But I think this is a very important crossroads for Jacob in his identity formation. I think that's something we who are queer think a lot about. We think a lot about transition. We think a lot about coming out. We think a lot about identity formation and who we are and what we're going to make of our life. And I think this comes at a very critical part of the plot. I'm talking about the the dream. Mm -hmm. And this solidifies his identity and his calling and it, it renews or, or it, it sort of recapitulates and builds on the covenant uh, with his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, let me just read this. I'm going to read uh, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 28. He reached right. a certain place where he decided to camp because the sun had gone down. He took one of the stones and placed it near his head. Then he fell asleep in that place. And had a dream. He saw a stairway erected on the earth with its top reaching to the heavens. The angels of God were going up and down and coming down. Oh, the angels of God were going up and coming down it. And the Lord stood at its top. He said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the ground you are lying on. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west, east, north, and south. And so all the families of the earth may receive blessings through you and your descendants. Oh, there's so much in here. Um, The first thing I want to say is this uh, traditionally translated ladder. Now, here's a secret. There's a lot of words in the Hebrew Bible that we don't know for sure exactly what they mean. Um, biblical Hebrew is not a living language. There's no community of speakers that we can go to to ask what this means. And unlike, for example, Greek, where we have a large volume of Greek texts from the ancient world that we can look up. So here's the other thing about how lexicography works. People who know these languages, we don't like just know them. The only evidence we have is how is this word being used? elsewhere in the ancient sources and looking at the context and seeing how this word is documented elsewhere, we can get a feeling for what it is or what it might not be. The problem with biblical Hebrew is there is not really a lot of biblical Hebrew outside the Hebrew Bible itself from this time. There's some inscriptions, but essentially biblical Hebrew is the the Hebrew we have. And this particular word, sulam, is used only once in the entire Hebrew Bible. And so it is hard to 
extrapolate and or generalize just from one instance what this word means. And so it's traditionally translated a ladder, but it could also be a stairway. It could be even a ramp. I've seen some people translate it based on um, an Akkadian cognate. And my point is, um, this is an image of accessibility, right? Like there's a gap between the earth and the heavens which people tried to close with the Tower of Babel, but there's also um, need for access is still real, and I think uh, this this speaks to that. And then it says, I will give you and your descendants the ground you are lying on. Um, I think that's a beautiful promise. It's not an exclusive promise, like, oh no, this is yours, and, and you get the blessings and no one else does. The whole point of blessing Jacob's family was to bless all the families of the earth. Uh, should right. receive blessings through through Jacob and his descendants. By the way, we don't have much time to talk about this now, but one of Jacob's sons, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, did not have an allotted land inheritance. And I bet most Latter-day Saints don't know which one it is. It's the Levites. The hmm. Levites did not get an inheritance of land. All of the other tribes got a piece of land that was their land. And in the ancient world, land was everything. It was inheritance. It was your capital for creation and sustaining of life. It was everything. The Levites uh, had cities where they were allowed to have, have cities. But the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people try to make this whole priesthood thingy about the Levites. I'm like, you don't realize, it's not like the Levites had everything else that everyone else had and then they got a little extra thing like no it was um there were some deficits that the levites had as well they had a lot of additional mm -hmm. obligations they and limitations and rules that applied to them it's and they were not allowed to have land and i'm not saying it all averaged out but to <laughs> to make it like the levites oh god was um with with priesthood restri restrictions what they don't understand is that in the modern era White men had everything and the priesthood, too. It's not like, um, it, it, anyway, it just makes no sense, some of the apologetics that try to people people do. And it's, at some point, we should have a conversation about this and, and how all these other things don't actually work out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, any of your thoughts on, uh, on uh, where you were going with this? No, the only thing I wanted to point out was, uh, you know, Jacob's declaration at the end of this dream. Again, this is him in the wilderness at his most vulnerable, at his most fearful. And he has this communication with God where he declares that surely the Lord is in mm, this place. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did not know it is what he says. Mm -hmm. I just think it's really I think it's really beautiful that, um, you know, I'm just looking at this as a person who may not always be able to have the access to God that everybody else has or may not feel like they have it. Mm -hmm. And yet in my most vulnerable, in my loneliness, in my isolation, there are people who experience this very thing. And, you know, you talk specifically about our queer siblings who will have this kind of vulnerability, who are afraid, who can't go home, who are strangers in a foreign land or between, you know, places to even live who like, but they can still find God. They can still have these moments of divine communion these moments of divine personal communion. And that's uh, that's really powerful. And we're going to see many more blessings to come to Jacob in the coming chapters as he lives into this promise that he gets uh, from God. And uh, we're going to see a parallel between this moment and his eventual wrestle with God. Uh, there's this kind of newness that uh, brings in a new chapter of his life. Uh, mm -hmm. both at the end of this story of this encounter with God and uh, at the conclusion of his uh, next encounter with God. So we can talk mm. more about that once we get to that part of the story, but I am, right. I'm, can, I'm done with 28. Talk more about that when we get there. All right. But I do want to just name again that it's this experience that I think serves as a, um, a spiral foundation for future encounters with God, right? He has this. He has this assurance that God is with him, and then yeah. he uses this, I think, later uh, to hold God accountable to these promises. So we yep. will see that. Okay. So now we are in. So now we get to 29. Do I have anything I want to say in 29? This is the marriage of Jacob to uh, Laban's daughters. And right. this is where we see the first little bit of uh, poetic justice done to uh, Jacob. Like just to rem 
to remind you guys, Jacob has mm-hmm. committed two pretty significant acts of deceit in his original family. Uh, he deceived both Isaac, his father, and Esau, his brother. And when he meets Rachel, he decides he wants to marry her, and then eventually gets tricked into marrying the older sister of La- the older sister of Rachel Laban, who is uh, the firstborn daughter of uh, the firstborn daughter of Laban, and. Um, yeah, there's that first act of deceit. He works seven years for Rachel, ends up getting Leah, and then he has to work another seven years for Rachel and does get to marry Rachel, but this kind of sets off another parallel, another sibling rivalry between mm-hmm. uh, between Rachel and Leah, which we are going to see immediately paralleled in uh, Sarah and Hagar. We are going to see mm-hmm. uh, Isaac, or sorry, Jacob's preference for Rachel and how that affects the relationship of Rachel and Leah, how that affects their children, how that affects uh, Jacob's, uh, you know, his line and all that other stuff. And uh, we'll get, I guess, more into that specific dynamic once we, uh, you know, once we actually read some more of this story. I don't think there's anything more in verse in chapter 29 about that story. We're going to get to more of that, but this is just the chapter where it all happens. The mm-hmm. act of deception that is done on Jacob and also the marriage to uh, the daughters. Well, I just want to pause and say, I really wish we knew more about how the women felt. We get hints of this, but of course it uh-huh. is now narrated presumably by a male uh, narrator who's who's shaping the narrative and choosing what to incorporate and, and making these assumptions. Uh, but we don't have their own words directly. And I'm wondering what, how would they feel? Like, Clearly, they wanted children, but do they mm-hmm. want children because they're they they have limited worth if they don't have children? The way the patriarchal society is constructed, and that is pretty clear, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, what what is it is going on this with this, and and what do they really want? Like, we don't know if um, Leah wanted to marry Jacob, right? We don't know that. Right. Like we don't know how how that was. Um, We don't know really what Rachel was thinking and what what her desires were. Um, uh, We can kind of read through the text, but uh, Jacob is said to love Rachel um, and not that is not the case for Leah. And so how does Leah feel about this? How does Rachel feel about this? And then. Um, we get some of their agency and initiative w- within the system when they uh, they uh, they make decisions. They say, "Well, here's my handmaid," or here they ask f- for um, the mandrakes in order to in order to conceive. Or they, Ugh. in many cases, I think in almost all of these cases, it's the women who name their sons. It's not all Jacob. It is all of them. It they is name all of their them, son. Yeah. So they they step up and they name what the their their uh, their sons or in the case of the the daughter Dinah uh, what they mean and so there's there's pieces of this and I I don't have all the answers and I as a man I shouldn't have all the answers right <laughs> yeah. uh, but look at but how I do want to name, name that well. there's what like how they name them as well like the names of all the children seem to be reflective of the state of mind the mothers were in right right it it is the the mother's commentary on these things um mm-hmm. anyway so there's just a big mess oh straight families are a mess i hope i get to say that right later <laughs> yeah, you're fine. later when we've got equality i can't say stuff like that but right now i'm going to say straight people straight families are a mess uh <laughs> they're not all right straight people are not okay um, I just want to name something interesting about cousin marriage here, because if you look at this anthropologically, through for, for most centuries of human history in most societies, um, the majority of your marriages are going to be, you know, second or third cousins or even closer. You've got small kinship groups, mm-hmm. and so here we've got a lot of um, a lot of, and this is this was true with. With every generation, it was true for Abraham, it was true for Isaac, now it's here, true, it's for, for, uh, true for Jacob. But let's talk a little, just a brief thing about cousin marriage, because there's a little thing about um, secular law. And uh, as it turns out, that in, um, in most of Europe during the Middle- medieval period, uh, fourth cousin marriage was 
prohibited. Anything fourth cousin and closer was prohibited, and you could not have a valid um, ma- marriage if you were fourth cousin. You could get a dispensation, I think, um, and some of the royalty had to do that because they were all cousins with each other. But anyway, mm-hmm. my point is there's going to be some jurisdictions where cousin marriage is legal and some jurisdictions where cousin marriage is not legal. And we can see this right here in the United States. In Massachusetts, first cousin marriage is legal. In my home state of Texas, first cousin marriage is not legal. And I don't really want to talk so much about the the, the rightness or ickiness of first cousin marriage. But what I do want to talk about is this idea of legal access to marriage because there's a whole bunch of questions that Latter-day Saints float through life without, I should say, straight Latter-day Saints float through life and they never think about. For example, I I think this is the case that n- no one anywhere globally in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, no one is allowed to be sealed without having a legal marriage in the uh, jurisdiction where they live, right? Um, so if – now I'm wondering about that. That's a very interesting thing because there are certain, uh, apart from the gay issue, there are certain marriages that are legal in one jurisdiction that are not legal in another, hmm. like a first cousin marriage. And I'm wondering, like, would uh, would one of these? What's interesting is now this couple, depending on where they live, makes an eternal difference. Like, if they live in one state or one jurisdiction, they are able to be sealed. But in another, they're not able to be sealed because we're not able to, as far as I know, have a sealing without being legal in the just in the jurisdiction that it is in. I'm like, mm. people probably have never thought about this, that there's some people where they they may have a marriage that's legal there, but not here in the United States. Are they able to be sealed? Are they not able to be sealed? There's just a whole bunch of questions of eternal import that people have never thought about. And and a lot of straight people are like, oh, we got it all figured out. I'm like, no, we don't. There's a thousand questions mm-hmm. that most people have never thought of that that directly bear on on issues of justice and inclusion and the plan of salvation. Like, like there's, there's going to be some straight families that can't, can't get sealed because of some other factor or another, um, just based on where they live or, or who they love or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm thinking of, I am resonating. It's a little bit out of context, but I'm resonating with Esau's words. Is there no blessing for me that he mm. says to his own father? And then his father gives him a blessing. It's not the, the one that he was cheated from him, but he got another one mm-hmm. uh, that covered a lot of the same ground. And I think mm. there's definitely ways to say, well, yeah, people say, nope, you don't have a blessing. But I say, is there no blessing for me? And I know that that's something that, um, uh, James Jane Elizabeth Manning James, Manning James said mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. I've been rambling on too much about cousin marriage. And uh <laughs> you good man. Um speaking of women's uh sort of initiative, there's an interesting incident in chapter thirty one, verses thirty four through thirty five. What happened is that Rachel had taken her father, Laban's, um, these household god figurine type things, uh, mm-hmm. because now they're going back uh, back to Canaan, mm-hmm. and uh, Jacob and his four wives and all their kids have to sneak out, and Rachel takes them without Jacob's knowledge, and mm-hmm. now Laban runs after them, trying to find who stole his household gods. And here's what verses 34 and 35 say of chapter 31. Now Rachel had taken the idols and put them inside her camel's saddle and sat on them. Uh, there, She's in a tent. Laban mm-hmm. searched the whole tent but did not find them. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord. I cannot stand up in your presence because I am having my period. So he searched thoroughly but did not find the idols. And here's something very, very interesting. And I don't want to hold up this example as um, as a uh, 
oh, look, everything works. But it's more of a curiosity about how within the constraints of a patriarchal system, Rachel was able to use what limited uh, strategies she had to to navigate the system. And I find mm-hmm. something very, very interesting about that. Um, oh, quite. Right. I'm not also, I think, the the idea of of male insecurity around menstruation that that's a problem right mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i think the fact that she was able to use that um i'm not trying to say oh look like women have privilege too cuz i'm not saying this is privilege what i'm saying is no. that she was able to use her positionality as a woman in a way that a man would not have been able to do right and that that needs to be named and i think queer people yes um we sometimes are able to use our positionality in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And I'm also thinking of the eunuchs in the Esther story. And I, the more I think about it, the uh, the more I love the eunuchs in the Esther story because they are the ma- major power players because of their their ability to do stuff that other people couldn't do. Like the mm-hmm. eunuchs could go into the women's quarters. They could go into the men's quarters. They could flow through. You know, Mordecai and Esther couldn't really even, really even talk to each other. Everything had to go through the eunuchs. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just marvelous that they're the ones that that are the movable pieces on the chessboard. And, and they are able to help her win the Miss Persia contest. Uh, and um, it's just, I think it's, I find it fascinating that people who are deprived of dignity and power and access and privilege are able to then twist that around in some ways and in in, uh, in some cases are able to make make something of it that they otherwise couldn't have and mm-hmm. i just find that a very a very beautiful thing and i'm not trying to make a direct parallel between unix and lgbt people today i think we can learn over the shoulder of the scriptures and see what kind of god there is that the God who loves eunuchs is also the same God who loves LGBTs, not that it's the same thing, but a lot of the same things of like, oh no, you can't have children, or oh no, you're, um, uh, you're not constructing family the right way, or oh no, you're not getting married, or oh no, you're like, whatever. I mean, like, the Lord has already addressed every one of these oh no's, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why people are looking at me and saying, oh no. Um, yeah, we should probably get on to the uh, to the. I mean, you know why they're saying "oh no"? <laughs> it's just not a good reason. Well, they they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And there it is—a brilliant and succinct articulation of the failure of the radical orthodoxy manifesto. Like, if you understood the scriptures and their purpose, you wouldn't be advocating for a simultaneous commitment to truth and to the teachings and counsel of anointed, but nonetheless historically and demonstrably imperfect men regarding chastity and morality. You know, the scriptures, uh, science, and queer people's own experiences and communications with divinity are witnesses against those teachings. The whole manifesto presumes that the brethren aren't wrong about things and that any exploration of God in the scriptures beyond the tutelage of modern prophets is questionable, and that's dangerous. It's a, tr- it's, a, it's a contradiction that stifles the very freedom of thought it claims to promote, and in so doing, denies scriptural truth and the power of, go- of a God that can grant knowledge of truths for us to live into that even the brethren haven't disseminated. That's happened in scripture many times. They were very close to something sensible. That's like what's frustrating about that whole thing. Like one of their sentences said, those who embrace radical orthodoxy strive to be valiant in their witness of restored truth. That would have been enough. And their argument would have been a lot more cogent because I know how to be valiant in the witness of restored truth while affirming queer people. I can affirm the marginalized and be loyal to restored truths and the brethren and the church. Like as soon as you affirm questionable ideas as restored truths, when there are, where literally no revelations or scriptures to do the same, you're losing your case. You're on a doomed mission. Um, I think what they were going for is, you know, similar to what MLK in, endeavored to do in his quest to be, to be moderate and radical at the same time. You know, moderate because he rooted his words in the teachings of Jesus and the American Constitution, 
and uh, radical because he was encouraging people to live up to the ideals of both uh, of both of those things in ways that we hadn't and weren't willing to embrace yet. Um, I, I don't believe that what I that what I believe they're attempting is impossible. But then again, if I'm reading the manifesto correctly, perhaps they were just looking for an intellectually acceptable way to validate queer phobia while extolling the virtues of truth-seeking so long as those truths were in line with the teachings of the church. And to me, that's just a pointless mission. So that whole thing is just silly to me. So yeah. Anyway, was there anything else in this section we wanted to talk about? Um, no, other than it, I I uh, suspect that in the future, um, there's going to be straight people in the church turning to queer people and asking us what to do because we have uh-huh. practiced the resiliency, we've practiced the endurance, we've practiced the how to navigate difficult things, and we're going to be holding the church together, right? Yeah. In in the next 50 years, we as a church have a lot of decisions to make. We have a lot of forks in the road. We have a lot of very challenging things that will be coming down the uh, whatever it is, coming down the barrel. I don't know, coming down the road. <laughs> well, the, yeah. we're gonna, we're going to have some really tough things, um, and some of them could be perceived to to shake some of the foundational narratives of our people. And we've got the tools. Like, look at Blair Osler's book. It's filled with tools for navigating these things. And mm-hmm. people are going to turn to the queers and say, we need your help. It's going to be like, um, Jacob, we're going to get to him uh, uh, later, his son Joseph, in the next generation. Joseph was marginalized by his own brothers, sent off mm-hmm. to Egypt, but then that was the very thing that allowed Joseph to serve his own people and feed them in a time of famine. And then they were so thankful. And I think there's going to be there's going to be uh, straight people who have persecuted me. Um, and they're going to turn around and say, Derek, I'm so thankful for what you're able to do to serve the Lord and to serve the Lord's church. And they're, they're going to have to live with that. Um, even some people in my own ward... They're gonna they're gonna turn around um, and actually be grateful for me and what I give to the church when they were so uh, hesitant to include me. So uh, we're moving on to uh, Jacob's wrestle. Um, yeah, and I have a bunch of stuff to say about this. I mean, I've covered it <laughs> elsewhere, so I'm gonna probably cover this briefly. Okay. Um, but I I want to actually read this text because normally we don't read large sections, but I really want to read this whole. Um, section in verse uh, in chapter 32 I'm going to be starting with verse 22 I think let me go to let me get there 32 all right okay so this is on the way back way on the way back to meet Esau so starting in verse 22 of, of 32 during the night Jacob quickly took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. Then a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat Jacob, he struck the socket of his hip, so the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then the man said, Let me go. For the dawn is breaking. I will not let you go, Jacob replied, unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? He answered, Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob, the man told him, but Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, Please tell me your name. Why do you ask my name? The man replied, Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, explaining, Certainly I have seen God face to face and have survived. And I just, wow, I almost don't even have anything to say now because, uh, but I probably should because um, I think the journey of faith is like... um, 
Jacob wrestling with, uh, traditionally seen as an angel of the Lord because of yeah. what Jacob comments, right? I've seen God face to face. So this is God, mm-hmm. later maybe euphemized to an angel of God. But I just find it Im- so impactful that we can wrestle with God. And we see indications of this in Enos chapter 1 and Alma chapter 8 uh, with with wrestling before or wrestling with God there. And I find that to be a powerful example of faith, is faith in God's character, holding God accountable to God's promises. We've gotten promises directly to Jacob at this point. Mm-hmm. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm, I feel the same way. I'm not going to let the church go until it blesses me. People, are gonna, people think I might leave the church or whatever eventually. People have predicted that. I know people when I join the church says I'm going to leave the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, nope. Uh, I'm not going to let... No, I'm, I'm, I'm here. We're stuck. So get used to all these jokes, everyone. We're stuck here <laughs> for eternity. Oh, no. For et- <laughs> We're going to be up in the celestial kingdom. And there's not going to be any, uh, well, anyway. Uh, So I just want to connect this with queer people. I want to say that queer people in the church uh, right now as a pre-official Declaration 3 church, right? We have not gotten official Declaration 3 yet. As a pre-official Declaration 3 church, we're in the spot of wrestling with God. And... um, we're, we're demanding a blessing, and I think we are counting on the church to live into its character and counting on God to provide, um, and, and that, that holds us in queer. Now, some people have read this um, in a homoerotic way, that you've got these two men mm-hmm. like physically interacting with one another, and there's something there, according to some people. Um, I, I don't really know what I want to do with that, but I just other than naming it. Uh, but I, I love this idea of holding God accountable, wrestling with God, not taking no for an answer, um, demanding that God bless you. That takes faith. I've said before, it takes more faith to say no to God than to say yes, because to say no to God, you have to have complete faith in God's character mm-hmm. to know that what you have has a basis. Mm-hmm. And you're grounding it in the covenant. The covenant is binding on God. And when you hold that up to God, that's faith. Um, what am I forgetting to say? Name of Israel. Oh, yes. Because I think this is I think this is important as well. Oh, yeah. I just totally assumed that. Um, no, it's fine. It's fine. I just assumed that, that people knew that. But yeah. Um, no longer will your name be Jacob, the man told him, but Israel. And this is very much connected to this transitional identity formation piece. Like a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of uh, queer people, we take on a new identity, and many trans people take on a literal new name. And I don't see mm-hmm. how we, having ordinances around new names and new lives and new identities, <laughs> can <laughs> can at all desecrate the sacred new names that our transgender siblings. Um, ask us to use like it mm-hmm. is just um, but anyway is Israel so we have two two components to here we've got um, Yisra and Ale uh, a verb meaning to fight or struggle or prevail and then the El meaning God and out of context let me just let me emphasize that out of context mm-hmm. you don't know whether the Ale is the subject or the object of the verb if it's the subject of the verb, it would be God fights or God prevails. Um, it, it could mean may God prevail, but as Dan McClellan says, it cannot mean allow God to prevail, right? And so if L is the subject of the verb, it would mean something like God prevails over Israel's enemies, right? God fights for mm-hmm. you, not against you, but God fights for you. God wins, God prevails, God struggles, and God is the God of Jacob who will defeat Israel's enemies. So that would be uh, what it means that way. But in context, we see uh, here and also in in Hosea. Let's look at Hosea chapter 12, verses... Uh, uh, Two through, um, yeah, starting two through four. You need at least four four. in there. Yeah, two through four, yeah. All righty. 
the Lord also has a covenant lawsuit against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. Um, now in Hosea, we're really talking about Jacob as the nation of Israel, not the not the the person anymore. All right. Verse three: In the womb, he attacked his brother. In his manly vigor, he struggled with God. He struggled with an angel and prevailed. He wept and begged for his favor. He found God at Bethel, and there he spoke with him. So we've got all of these things tied back together. The Bethel experience with the ladder where you got the promise. You've got um, Jacob insisting on favor. You've got uh, Jacob struggling with an angel and prevailing, um, which is the same verb. He struggled with an angel that we have in Israel's name, also mentioned here in Genesis uh Genesis 32. So there's a lot of people who are going to take this idea of let God prevail and use it in a in an abusive or controlling manner. Um, they're going to say let God prevail means you need to follow what I think God is telling me to tell you to do when that person does not bear the cost of what it is that the Lord is actually asking us to do. But this goes back to independent access to God on your own terms with your own ladder or your own access to God, your own reasonable accommodation, whether it's a ramp or a staircase up to uh, God, um, God meeting people on their own individual journey. And we as individuals notice that Jacob was alone. He as an individual struggled with the angel of the Lord Mm -hmm. and prevailed. And people like this, is a central castle text. And, and for those that are haven't heard this before, I've thought of certain texts as choose your castle text. Choose the text that when someone comes at you with something homophobic that you can defend yourself with, not to them, not to score points against them, but to insulate yourself from the effects of what they're doing and say, nope, I'm, I've got this that will ground me and hold me. And I hear is one of them. That absolutely models the example of prevailing with God. And boy, am I going to prevail with God. We're going to have some words um, <laughs> based on what's going on. And now, I, now I've said a lot, and I know you have something to say. Not very much. Like I just wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to point out a couple things about this particular story, the wrestle, that I had either missed or brushed over. And I, I don't think we addressed when we invoke Jacob's wrestle with God in the past. And we've, you know, done this many times. But uh, first first thing is a minor but still significant to me detail about this wrestle, which is that uh, this wrestle Jacob has is to a degree with himself. The, uh, the text makes sure to mention that he is alone. And there is some uh, significant wordplay in verses 22 and 24 to indicate the personal nature of this wrestle. There's the name Jacob, the river Yabok, and the word wrestle itself. Respectively, in Hebrew, these words are Yaakov, Yabok, and Yabek. At the, at the very least, it's almost as if Jacob entering this space, being uh, by this river, causes the encounter he's about to experience. Uh, but because of the events preceding all this and what Jacob becomes after all is said and done, this seems to be personal to a degree, and it also seems to have the purpose of self-confrontation based on you know how this uh, ends up. It, it seems to be a self-confrontation of, of Jacob making of making Jacob confront who he is, what his name means as a supplanter and a uh, trickster. Jacob Jacob's name turning to Israel is like this transformative thing. It indicates that he is a uh, putting that part of himself, the supplanter and the trickster behind him. And we don't see Jacob, the supplanter and the trickster again after this meeting with Esau. There, there's also obviously a trans allegory here, but we'll talk about that after the uh, second thing I noticed, which is that uh, the, 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 the costly nature of this wrestle. Jacob was injured during this wrestle and he walked away with a limp. He was He was fighting injured and he left injured, but... He also left blessed and with a new name and a new identity, which brings me to the uh, third thing, which is that Jacob's new name means you have fought with God and humans 
and have prevailed, which is just beautiful when you think about our trans siblings who have to fight with other humans to be, you know, recognized as human and they have to fight with the divine because they know and feel in their spirit and their bodies that they are valid and divine in spite of the messaging they get from most of the world. And like Israel, they they come out on the other side injured, but uh, but blessed and new. I think there's a real beauty there. I think there is. And I think this is you can't separate this from the meeting with Esau, which we don't have time to talk about. But spoiler alert, uh, they 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 reconcile. They're forgiven. Everything's restored. Um, but. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he keeps that with him. He for the rest of his life, it appear apparently he has this disability and for the rest of his life, he has this name. He mm-hmm. takes that is how much this formed his identity. Like I said, um, this is an identity forming piece, and he was able to name and claim blessings from God. And I just hope and pray that all of our listeners will find ways of naming and claiming blessings from God because they're there, and they're the basis for these is in our sources. You have independent access to God on your own terms and just wrestle with God. And here's the other thing. God can take it. I, I, I don't know why all of these Latter-day Saints are so cushy and delicate about God. Like, oh, no, we can't, we can't like, say anything God can't handle. Oh, no. Like, no, God can handle it. Like, God's, God's a—I was about to say God's a big boy, right? But we don't want to <laughs> gender God. Right, but God, right. God can handle it. Like, God has seen centuries and centuries of stuff, right? God knows. Mm-hmm. God knows us so well, right? God can take it, okay? Why is everyone so nervous about? Oh no, Derek, you're 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 stretching us, and you're 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 teaching something new. I'm like, yeah, get over it, get over yourselves, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Just get over your homophobia. It's not about you. Just figure out what you need to wrestle with and move on. Mm-hmm. And also I would argue with, you know, are you really teaching anything that new? Like I know that the goal is to eventually get some groundbreaking revelations, but ultimately are those revelations going to be affirming stuff that we don't already have scriptures to affirm? Like when yeah, official and declaration... You know, People, I honestly think that when the revelation comes, it's going to make so much more sense than what we've got now. People are going to be so relieved. It's, there's not going to be this panic of, oh, no. And like It's going to be like, yeah, we just grew into where we should have been all along. Mm-hmm. It's going to make so much mm-hmm. more sense. Like, um, I don't want to make a close parallel, but if you looked look at our racist theology, that doesn't fit. It, it never really authentic to me. It never really authentically fit with what we truly believe about God being the God of all people, people that all of us are are um, in the image of God, that all of us are children of God, that God is no respective person. Like all this stuff, our beautiful theology got distorted by the laziness of white people who didn't do anything about it for uh, over a century, right? And now we look back and we wonder, how did we ever manage to sh- shove it in? And um, and I think the same thing will be true. Like after the revelation that will lead to the, um, the liberation and incorporation fully of people of all genders, all gender identities, all um, orientations, after that we're going to wonder, how did we ever even try fitting this thing in that that it has is not even native to our tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like people are going to be shocked at how did we ever do it? Mm-hmm. Right now people are like how could we ever make the change and in the future people are going to be like how did we how did we get by without it? Yes sir. And that and some right of there. us didn't get by without it, right? Some of mm-hmm. us are not here today because of the injustice in this church. Mm-hmm. Some of us are no longer members or some of us are no longer alive because of this injustice. And there's not enough straight people making enough noise about this. Yeah, making noise. Well, before we go ahead and uh, wrap up, get into our closing exercises and all that stuff, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you all on to called the, uh, the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. Uh, lots of great reviews, lots of great stuff going on, some wonderful guests he'd be having on there, great conversations. Uh, probably one of my favorite uh, 
one of my favorite Mormon podcasts at the particular moment, just because Blair has a great interview style. And I do find, you know, the people he has on to be very interesting. Um, but there's like scholars, there's writers, there's activists and a lot of other kinds of folks. And it's a great place to go if you're spiritual, but, but not religious or religious, but not spiritual. There's like, there's something for you on Fireside. So go ahead and listen to a Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. We can also search us on Facebook. We do have a glow page that people should uh, be reminded about in case you want to support us in that way um there's also james james's course at thinkific what is it btb academy at think something say that again yes btbacademy.thinkific.com okay yeah so come come join us yes definitely and I uh, also want to give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Uh, also, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help for, uh, you know, with the social media. And uh, also the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, uh, including Stephanie Peterson, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. Also, Mary Gavilanes. I think I've been saying her name the wrong way for the last three or four weeks. I apologize. I think I've been saying Galavanes, but it's Gavilanes. So my bad. And uh, thank you to the folks who have corrected me. But these uh, outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes, uh, the Holy Human episodes from the same week as well. Um, yeah. And you can find the link to the outlines in our uh, show notes, at, as well as the uh, drop down menu on the website. And the same goes for the transcripts. Those will also be in our show notes and the drop down menu on our website. Is there anything else I need to include, Brother Derek? Um, well, I mean, we were talking about the um, the Fireside podcast, both yes, both the the Bristol Cone, and then and then Blair Hodges thing. I just yeah, want to tell Fireside, everyone that yes. uh, if you're with me, it's always a Fireside because I'm always flaming. Dang it, man! <laughs> ah! We were almost done. We were almost done. <laughs>